We're going to talk today about contending for the faith. Contending for the faith. So, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, and that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to those having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, Wandering stars from whom, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which godly, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, 
praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And Lord, as we have read your gospel, as we talk about your gospel today, as we talk about the good news that is found in Jesus Christ, Lord, open our hearts and our minds, change us, conform us to the very image of the Son of glory. Lord, break down the things within us, the hindrances, the walls of division. Break down those things. Make us a level plane that the glory of God would be seen and known through your people, the church. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jude begins this little letter by introducing himself to us. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. So Jude is the one writing. He is the brother of James, which indicates that he is also the half-brother of Jesus. James was the brother of Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary. Joseph was not the father of Jesus, remember. God was the father of Jesus. And he caused Jesus to be conceived in the womb of Mary, and Mary birthed Jesus. And so, Jude, when he writes this letter... He says the brother of James, he does not link himself biologically or in a family way to Jesus. What's interesting is he introduces himself not as the half-brother of Jesus. We grew up together. He introduces himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. James at that time was the head of the church in Jerusalem. So James was well known to these Jewish believers that Jude was writing to. And being a brother of James was significant, but being a bondservant of Jesus Christ was more significant. As a brother, a half-brother of Jesus, growing up in the same family as Jesus, we know from the Gospels that Jesus' family was skeptical of him. There was the episode when Jesus is in a house teaching, and they say, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And the answer Jesus gave was, who is my mother and who are my brothers? 
In other words, Jesus was saying to everyone gathered there, you are my mothers, you are my brothers, you are my family. I am here to be about my father's business. He was not disrespecting his mother or his brothers. He was simply stating who he was and why he was here. And we know in another account of the Gospels, when Jesus is getting ready to go up to the feast, his brothers mock Jesus, aren't you going up to the feast? So there was skepticism. But yet we see in this little letter that Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James, doesn't introduce himself as someone related by family to Jesus. He introduces himself now as the bondservant of Jesus. Not one skeptical of Jesus, but one who has wholly committed himself to Jesus. This term bondservant is significant. It would be equivalent to our word slave. That's literally what it is. Jude, the slave of Jesus. But a bondservant was not just a slave who was enslaved against their will. A bondservant was someone who enslaved themselves willingly. They made a decision to enslave themselves for life to their master. This is what Jude is calling himself. Going from a skeptic to a bondservant, one who not by force or by threat, but by choice and out of love has joined himself to Jesus Christ and considers and calls himself the bondservant of Jesus. This is who is writing this letter. And who is he writing to? He's writing to those who are called. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in or for Jesus Christ. A more literal translation of this is to them who are sanctified in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Called ones. Jude says, I'm writing to you called ones ones. I'm writing to you who are sanctified in God the Father. Now, he's not talking about just, he's not really referring to internal sanctification. That word sanctifies, it means holy, but the word holy means set apart. What Judas painting for us the picture, the word picture he's painting. He says, I'm writing to you called ones, you who have been set apart in God the Father. So it's kind of like, you know, in your own life or in your own home, in your own attempt to, to set things apart, you don't just throw everything together in one big pile, but there are certain things that you keep in certain places because they're special. This is the picture. Jude is saying, I'm writing to you who aren't just lumped in with all the rest of humanity in a big heap. And God's going through looking for you. 
Now he says, I'm writing to you called ones who are set apart in God the Father. This is why Peter says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people who are brought out of darkness to show forth the praises of him. To them who are sanctified, set apart in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, called ones. Now, your Bible may say sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. That little word we translate in, we can translate it in, but this word literally is saying we are kept for Jesus Christ. This is significant because it's a promise about our salvation. So the picture is, I'm writing to you called ones who have been set apart in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ for the day of his coming. Who has kept us? God has kept us. Who keeps us? God keeps us. This, I missed most of our Sunday school lesson today, but this goes right to the heart of what it seems the lesson was about when we talk about do we keep ourselves or does God keep us? Do we save ourselves or does God save us? Well, no right Christian, no Christian in his right mind is going to say we save ourselves, but in reality, that's what we oftentimes practice and that's what we oftentimes believe by the things we say and the things we do. And Jude is making a statement. He's writing to the church here and he's saying, you called ones who have been set apart in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Remember, it's like I always say, salvation is not what you possess. Salvation is who possesses you. You didn't find God God found you. You are not capable of finding God until God wanted to be found by you. You get me? So salvation is not what you possess that you might or might not lose like you do your car keys or your cell phone. Salvation is who possesses you. And Jude is saying he will not lose you. Because you are kept for Jesus Christ. You are set apart in God the Father. And I would just imagine that God the Father, when he sets something apart, he's not going to forget where he set it. Unlike me. When I was working on our house, I'd have my tape measure and about every Five minutes. I was going, where did I put my tape measure? Where did I put my tape measure? I know I just had it, but I can't find it. I promise you, God does not do that. He set you apart in him, and he does not lose you. He is keeping you for Jesus Christ and the day of his coming. And we're going to see the significance of that here in just a little bit. And here's what he declares, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. How do you like that? How would you like to have mercy, 
peace and love multiply to you? Well, I would. The world sure needs it, doesn't it? Mercy, peace, and love multiply to you. Beloved, I was... Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, there's some things here you should pay attention to. If you have your Bible, you have a notebook, I advise you to do this. Get your Bible and highlight some things. So I highlighted here, beloved, while I was very diligent to write. That's significant. Jude says, while I was diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, how, how did he write? He wrote diligently. He didn't write occasionally. He didn't write when it was convenient. He didn't write just when he thought about it. He wrote diligently. That means that he continuously wrote to them to do what? To remind them, to encourage them, to build them up concerning our, our, not just your, but our common salvation. He said, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary. Now, there's a difference. He's doing one for one reason. Now he's writing for a totally different reason. While I was diligent to write concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you. That word exhort can mean to encourage, but, but this is a word that, that carries action with it. He's not just writing a suggestion for them. He is exhorting them. He is, he is begging them. He is pleading with them. He is encouraging them. He is implying that they are moved to action, that they take action concerning their faith. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He found it necessary to write, to exhort that they would contend. Do you know what contention means? It means conflict. To contend means to fight. Jude is writing to the church, telling the church to fight for the faith. The faith, not a faith, not your faith, but the faith. There's a huge difference. This is significant. He's not just talking about any faith. He's not just talking about one person's faith versus another person's faith. What's important is that you just have faith in something higher than yourself. No, that's not good enough. Having faith in the doorknob is not good enough. Having faith in a power higher than yourself is not good enough. Hear me, church. This is not what Jude's talking about. He's not talking about just having faith in something. 
other than yourself. He's talking about the faith. He uses the language that is pointing us with a laser focus to a certain faith. The faith. I find it necessary to exhort you to contend for the faith, which was once for all, which was, not will be. This is why we do not believe in the golden tablets of Joseph Smith and the angel Moroni. This is why we do not believe in another testament of Jesus Christ. Because Jude says, I'm talking to you about contending for the faith that was, past tense, was already, was delivered once, once for all. Not again, several thousand years in the future. That was delivered once for all to the saints. See, the language of the Bible is very important. We can read over and gloss over what the Bible says, but we should pay attention to what God is saying because God is saying what he is saying for very specific reasons and purposes. Jude wrote to the called ones, out of his faithful diligence, he wrote to them about their common salvation to build them up. But Jude wrote to the called ones also out of need and necessity to spur them to action, to contend earnestly, to fight for the faith. The faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that signifies there is only one faith, and that faith has once for all been delivered to the saints. That is to all the church, past, present, and future. Now, why did he find it necessary to write exhorting them to fight for the faith? Well, he tells us in verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, as in Jude's day, there are certain ones who have crept in unnoticed and are creeping into our churches unnoticed. How does one creep into a place unnoticed? If you were going to creep into a place unnoticed, what might you do? You might dress the way they dress. You might talk the way they talk. You might pretend like you're just part of everybody else. I'm a Christian just like you're a Christian. We're just another denomination in the Christian church. We're just like you. No, actually you're not. If you do not believe in the same Jesus that the Bible declares. It's not that you believe in the same Jesus I believe in. Because I could believe in the wrong Jesus. It's that you believe in the Jesus that the Scripture declares. 
If I believe in the scripture, if I believe in the Jesus the scripture declares, and you believe in the Jesus the scripture declares, then we believe in the same Jesus. But if I say I believe in one Jesus, and you say you believe in the same Jesus, but, but the meanings of those Jesuses are different, then we're not believing in the same Jesus. If I believe in the Jesus who the scripture declares to be the son of the living God, who declares to be the second person of the Trinity, the one who created all things, the one through whom all things were created, by thing, all created, and for they were all created for. If that's the Jesus I am believing in, the Jesus the scripture declares, and you're believing in that Jesus, then, then we're good. But if you say, I believe in Jesus, and he's not God, and he's not divine, but he is the spirit brother of Lucifer, or he's the son of God, but he's not God. If that's the Jesus you believe in, we can use the same name, Jesus, but we're not talking about the same person. Do you know that, that Jesus was an extremely common name? When Jesus was born, there were countless thousands of little boys all over, all over Israel named Jesus. You know why they were named Jesus? Because every mother wanted her son to be the Messiah. And so every mother named her child that name that, signif that, that signified God's salvation. You can go to various parts of the world today and find people running around with the name Jesus, but that doesn't mean they are the Jesus of the Scripture because they have the same name. So this is how men creep in unnoticed. They blend in, looking and sounding the same, but preying on those who, who are vulnerable Praying on those who do not mark the difference, who do not differentiate and distinguish between what is and what sounds true and what actually is true. There are a lot of things that sound true, that appear true, that are not actually true. We all know this, right? You can pull up any illusionist YouTube video. And watch him, and it looks like he's performing real magic, but it's not. It's just an illusion. It may be amazing that he can make it look so real, but it's just an illusion. We need to differentiate between what is true and what is not true. The faith that is of the truth has once for all been delivered, and we must contend for it against those who would seek to destroy it by presenting a false narrative. It's not a matter of you losing your salvation. It's a matter of what faith, the faith or another faith that is being taught and passed down to the generations. So when Jude writes, I found it necessary to write to you to exhort you to contend for the faith, he's not saying you need to fight harder to keep your salvation because you may be losing your faith. He's saying, as I'm writing to the churches about our common salvation, 
this thing keeps coming back to me that there are people coming into your churches teaching another gospel. There are people coming into the churches teaching not the faith, but another faith. And if they're in your churches and you're not doing anything about it, that's not good. I'm writing to you now out of necessity and telling you you need to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Now, how does that happen in our day today? Now, people say the Bible's an old book. It's not relevant for us today. Really? We're studying through the book of Ecclesiastes on Wednesday night, and we just are finishing the first chapter. And in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, I'll quote it to you later on, Solomon writes this, there's nothing new under the sun. The things that were will be again. The things that will be will be forgotten, and then they'll happen again. Or what we commonly say is history repeats itself. Or we say this, if we don't, if we don't remember history, we're doomed to repeat it. Well, that's actually very biblical. That's actually absolutely biblical. It's in the Bible, written for us to warn us So Jude's not saying, hey, be careful. You need to fight to keep your salvation. He says, hey, be careful. There are men creeping in among you who are saved, preaching false doctrines, false gospels, false faith. And what's going to happen? They're going to begin to condemn the, the, pollute the message. The message is going to be polluted. And then you're going to end up with this hodgepodge and people aren't going to know what's real and what's not. Kind of sounds familiar in our day-to-day, -day, doesn't it? People quote me all the time what they think the Bible says. And, and, and much of, I'm telling you, it's not even uncommon for people to tell me what's in the Bible. And it's, I'm like, that's not even in the Bible. Oh, it's not? No. It's not. That's not biblical. I thought that was in the Bible. Well, they told me it was in the Bible. Well, who told you it was in the Bible? Well, well, I don't know. I just always heard it was. This was a real conversation I had with somebody recently. I said, well, have you ever read the Bible? Well, no, I've never read the Bible. But yet you're telling me what's in the Bible and you've never read it? Well, uh, they, just they told me that's what the Bible said. But you never actually picked the Bible up to find out for yourself what the Bible says. No, I haven't. Well, maybe you should do that. Before you go to put words in God's mouth, maybe you better find out what God actually said and what he didn't say. And this is how, because we don't contend for the faith, because the word contend is not a politically correct word, especially in the church. Because the church is very clear. We should resist those, remove ourselves from those who cause division. That's true. But yet Jude is saying, contend for the faith. Well, is he contradicting himself? No, he's not. Because what causes division? What causes division is when we have people who come into the church and begin to preach and teach things that are not of God. And we say, well, you know, these things that they used to believe back in the day, they just, those are, man, those are old. Get modern. Get current. 
So now we can call marriage, we can define marriage however we want to. Two men, two women, two men, one woman, one man, two women. It's not like they haven't already tried it. Remember, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just that we as a nation, we, we, we actually made laws and passed laws to line up with what the Bible says. But now as a nation, we've made laws and passed laws that tear down what the Bible says because the Bible's not relevant anymore. So now, if two men or two women want to marry, they should be able to do that legally. And we call it marriage. Do you know where marriage came from? It comes from God. He created it. He invented it. Man did not do that. We don't have the right to take what God created and turn it into what we want to turn it into or what we think is politically correct to turn it into. Now, I understand this is not a politically correct message I'm giving you today. And this is why we do not contend for the faith in the church any longer because nobody wants to offend anybody. We would rather just offend God is what we would rather do. We don't have a problem with offending God, but don't offend the people. Because you know, Pastor, if you start offending the people, they'll stop giving. They'll stop coming. They'll go find a church that won't offend them. Jude found it necessary to write, to encourage, to exhort, to move to action the church to contend for the faith. And Jude warns the saints of God's judgment against those who live opposed to and contrary to the faith. Listen to verse 5. But I want to remind you, though once you knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. For the judgment of the great day. That's the day that you are kept for. You are set apart in God for Jesus Christ. And in that great day, you will not experience the wrath of God, the judgment of God coming upon the wicked if you have been set apart in God for Jesus Christ. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example. So the people, the angels, the cities are set forth as an example, suffering the, the vengeance of eternal fire. God's judgment will fall on those who actively oppose the faith as well as those who passively reject the faith. 
God's love commands that we contend for the faith on behalf of those who claim to be in the faith and for those who have not yet come into the faith. When we look around each and every Sunday at all these little children here, we should have no other reason to contend for the faith. But I'm going to give you a greater reason than these children. The greater reason to contend for the faith is God himself. These little children are going to grow up with the faith that we give them or we teach them. They're going to believe the scripture. They're going to believe things about God. They're going to believe things about our worship and about the church and about the people of God based on what we teach them and what we model for them. And if we're lazy and complacent and we just allow any doctrine to come in because it happens to be politically correct or because they're threatening our financing or our tax-exempt status, then we, we are not faithful to God, much less to these children in the generations that are coming up after us. Verse 8, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Verse 10, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts. In these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the area of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by their wind, by winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. You shouldn't be afraid to let. I know some people with a. Mormon or Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, you, people won't even talk to them. I actually don't think that's scriptural. What it says is don't let them in your house. What, what, what it means is you don't invite them in to teach you. You don't invite them in to, to instruct you. No one should ever preach from this pulpit. No one should ever teach from this pulpit unless they are of the faith. I have pastor friends, acquaintances, who have allowed Mormons to come and preach, Mormon bishops to come and preach from their pulpits, proclaiming that they are no different than any other Christian denomination. As long as I am the pastor of Christ Fellowship Church, that will never happen. Because I believe I would be in direct opposition to what the Word of God declares is my stewardship and my responsibility to you. These are spots, stains, defilements in your love feast. It's a picture of empty faith filled with empty promises that are being carried about by the winds. This is, this is 
what those proclaim who are not proclaiming the faith and the truth as we know it in Jesus Christ. It's empty. It's empty faith. It's empty promises. It's empty words. It has no fruitfulness. It has no meaning. It's defiled. It's a picture of promise containing only spiritual death with no spiritual fruit. This is the picture of late autumn trees with no fruit, pulled up by the roots, directly contrasting Jesus, the tree of life, the root of Jesse, whose branches are filled with fruit. And you are called the branch of the Lord. John 15, you are the branches. Jesus said, I am the true vine. You are the branches. And my Father is glorified by the much fruit that you bear. Verse 13, he calls them raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. You ever been to the coast? Especially when there's a hurricane or strong winds and the waves are just coming up on the coast and there'll be this foam. It looks like meringue or calf slobber, just like piles of it all on the coast. Raging waves, he calls them wandering stars. Stars because the Bible says that when the angels of heaven followed Lucifer, a third of the stars were cast down. The angels were likened to stars. The word angel in the Bible means messenger. These are stars. These are angels. These are wandering messengers for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. They're stars in their own minds, but they're just wandering messengers who are waiting to be cast into outer darkness. What is the conclusion? What is Jude telling the church? The wicked will not stand. God will make right. Don't be deceived. Don't follow the wandering stars. Don't Go after what looks good and may sound good, but adhere to the truth and contend for the faith. Listen to verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Ultimately, all sin is against God. Our sin, all sin is against him. When we wrong one another, when we wrong another person, we sin against them. But more importantly, we sin against God. We need to repent for our sin against God. No matter how well or how ill-intentioned a person may be, when their words and their life oppose the faith and the truth of God, they sin against God. Verse 16, these grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Great swelling words like a balloon full of hot air. And it just 
comes to nothing. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. What causes the division? It's their false doctrine. It's their false faith. It's the false gospel. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. So he contrasts here those who do not have the Spirit with those who have the Spirit. And he calls them sensual or natural persons, contrasted with spiritual persons. We can't contend for the faith if we don't know what that faith is. If we don't remember what it is we are contending for and why we are contending. Now, why is it everybody thinks it's so controversial to have same-sex marriage? Well, what's the big deal about abortion? Well, what's the big deal if we want to take pronouns, male and female pronouns out of the Bible and just make it all neutral? What's the big deal about that? These are sensual persons having not the spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. We who have the Spirit, how do we have the Spirit? If we are in Christ, do we have the Spirit? If you are trusting in Christ, if you are born again, if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. And we who have the Spirit are contending against those who profess to have the Spirit, but in reality do not. They're creepers, they're creeping in, they're pretenders. To draw people away, we contend against sensual, natural persons who, in fact, do not have the Spirit. These are in contrast to those spiritual persons who do have the Spirit, who are in Christ, who have faith and trust in Jesus, who are called ones, who are set apart in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ at His coming. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit. When you pray to God, you pray in the Spirit, for the Spirit makes intercession for us. Here's what Paul writes in Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Do you know that? You can read that, but do you know that? Or do you think that the only time the Spirit prays for you is when you activate it? There are, there are people in the church that teach that. The Spirit doesn't pray for you until you activate the Spirit. You've got to activate the Spirit. Honey, if you've got to activate the Spirit to work for you, you are in big trouble. Because you just think about all the things you can't remember to activate. You think about all the things you can't remember to turn on or turn off. Did I, did I unplug that? Did I plug that in? Did I turn that on? Did I? 
if the Spirit praying for you is dependent upon you activating the Spirit, we're all in a heap of trouble. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And he does that when. Who is the Spirit? He is the third person of the triune Godhead. What time does God take a nap? What time, what's your nap time? Today, you're going to go home today. You're going to take a nap. Say, so, yeah, I wish you'd hurry up and finish, preacher, because my nap time's approaching. But let me tell you, God doesn't have a nap time because God never sleeps. He never slumbers. That means the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you never stops making intercession for you. He is never not praying for you. When you pray in faith, when you are in Christ Jesus, when you are his child, born again, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, when you pray to God your Father in heaven, you can't help but pray in the Spirit because you have the Spirit and the Spirit has you. Jude is contrasting those who do not have the Spirit. Now their prayer may sound really good, may sound theologically correct, but if they're not in Christ, they don't have the Spirit. And when they pray, they're not praying in the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? Well, Jesus told us what the Spirit does. The Spirit leads us and guides us, teaches us, reminds us, and calls to remembrance all the things that Jesus has told us. So when we pray in the Spirit, what is the Spirit of God on the inside of you going to do? It's, he's going to tell you the truth. That's what he's going to do. And if you have renewed your mind to the word of God, if you've hid his word in your heart, if you actually take the time to read the Bible, meditate on the Bible, study the Bible, when you begin to pray, the spirit of God is going to lead you into that truth that you need so that you can distinguish what's real and what's not, what's true and what's a lie, what's going to lead to your life or what's going to lead to your destruction. And there's a lot of people being led down the primrose path of destruction today and they think it's all about life and it's not and they teach and they preach that God is a God of anything goes because he's a God of love and we're all going to go to heaven in the end you better read your Bible again you better check that out before you start down that path too far. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. This echoes the command of Christ written in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, says Jesus, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you saw your, your child or your brother or your sister fixing to drink a cup of poison that would kill them instantly, would you stop them? Well, sure you would. But yet, somehow, we don't see it a problem to let people believe false doctrines and teach false doctrines and adhere to false doctrines that are leading them to death, absolute death. We don't want to call them out on it because we don't want to hurt their feelings. I wonder how bad their feelings are going to be hurt when they're eternally separated from God in darkness and blackness 
and eternal fire. I wonder if anybody is going to be wishing that somebody would have told them the truth. I don't know. Maybe not. But here's what God commands. He commands that we tell the truth. He commands that we live the truth. He commands that we contend for the faith and the truth. That we do not bow down, bend over, and allow the politically correct culture we live in to define our God, to define his word, and to define our faith. And if we do that, that is not love. That is the exact opposite of love. The Bible says a parent who will not discipline their child hates that child. But yet there are many parents who don't want to discipline their children because they're afraid it's a sign of not loving that child. The Bible says just the opposite. And if God will not discipline us, it means he doesn't love us. And if we don't tell people the truth, what that really means is we really don't love people. If we're content to let people believe a lie and go to their destruction, that's not love. That's really what the Bible calls hatred. Verse 22, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Keep yourselves in the love of God is not about us keeping our salvation. It's about how we walk through this world. And if we walk through this world with the love of Christ, we're going to have compassion on some people and we're going to act compassionately, lovingly, but on other people, we're going to distinguish and we're going to realize that compassion is not what they need right now. They need the fear of God right now because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so love doesn't mean I have compassion all the time and never, never put the fear of God in people. Love means there's going to be times when you operate out of compassion. There's going to be other times when you're going to absolutely need to put the fear of God in people because that's the only thing that's going to save them. And it's not you who determines that, it's God. But the Spirit of God in you will give you the wisdom to know. This is what verse 22 means. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. Know who you're dealing with. Know who they are and so know how to witness and to speak some save with compassion and some save with fear. Then comes the great doxology. He closes this letter. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Who is able to keep you from stumbling? You should put a big yellow highlight on that word him. You notice it doesn't say now to you who is able to keep yourself from stumbling. You can't keep yourself from stumbling, but he can. And this is his promise. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling to, and to present you faultless. You can't do that either, but he can. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. With exceeding joy, it is his 
joy to present you faultless before his glorious presence. If that's not good, good news, I don't know what is. Amen. Let's get ready to come to the Lord's table. Let's all stand. The root causes of trends and events happening in our day and in our age are not new. They may be new to us. They may be new in our lifetimes. They may be new in our generations. But the things that have brought us to where we are as a culture, as a nation, as the greater church, are not new. Ecclesiastes 1.9, that which has been is what will be, that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. The same lie and the same sin from the fall of man in the garden is the same lie and the same sin we struggle against today. We are commanded to contend for the faith. That means we must know the faith, we must know the truth that that faith consists of. To fight, we must know who we fight, why we fight, and how we fight. We must contend with our own apathy and complacency before we will be able to obey God and contend for the faith. God charges us, God commands us to be a people with a living and active faith. I charge you to resist complacency and apathy God charges all of us to contend for the faith for his glory. Amen.